Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. After being diagnosed with breast cancer at age 35 in 2009, Laura Stratty began helping others through advocacy and peer support organizations. In 2012, Laura moved into oncology nursing, specializing in breast cancer, survivorship, and wellness. Laura, thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. I am so excited to be talking to you and telling you about my journey. Yeah. So, um, so in the intro, we know a little bit about who you are, but tell us more about who you are, what you do, and also where are you calling from today? So I am calling from Whitefish Bay, Wisconsin, which is a suburb of Milwaukee. So right on the shore of Lake Michigan. Um, this is where I was raised. Okay. I'm living here now. I'm a mom. I have two teens. I've got a dog. And I kind of try to hack my way through cooking dinner every night. Thankfully, <laughs> my husband likes to cook. Um, but I am at, I've been a nurse for um, 11 years. It's a second career for me. And uh, right when I was in nursing school, I was diagnosed with cancer and that absolutely directed my path um, within nursing and within healthcare. Um, so I have been at the same cancer, or I've been at the same hospital system since then, since I started and got to have a, I had a wonderful navigator when I was going through my uh, diagnosis and treatment and she has become my mentor. And so I've been just been really lucky to kind of learn from the best. And it's just, it's been a wonderful experience. And, and um, I kind of transitioned from working with patients kind of in the beginning uh, of diagnosis and getting them into care kind of towards the end of that active treatment as they're trying to kind of start life again after going through all of this and what does that mean? And, and um, so it's been kind of a nice journey through the continuum of care as well, professionally. Okay, um, before we dive into your cancer journey, what did you do before you decided to become a nurse? Um, my first degree is in fine art, actually, in textiles. And I had this dream to become an artist, but then you graduate, right? And you need to like pay rent. <laughs> and I got a job working for nonprofits. I did a little a bit of that in college. Um, I actually went abroad for a little while, worked for like a call center in Scotland, um, which was really fun and <laughs> came home, um, started working for nonprofits, got into some association management. And then uh, when my son was born, I went to work for my husband's company where I actually got to use my degree and I designed neckties. So, so his company makes neckties and scarves for art museums. So that was fun. It was fun to be able to use my education in that way. Oh, that's very cool. That's, that's very cool. Um, so why did you want to become a nurse? You know, when um, I was working with my husband, I wanted to find something. I always kind of knew that it was kind of like temporary. So I wanted to find a new career and I, I, I wanted to do something that had a mission that I agreed with. Um, I wanted something that was flexible, um, that was family friendly, that you could do a lot of different things. And that's one of my favorite parts about nursing is you could be a nurse that's sitting behind a desk. You can be a nurse that's on the floor, you know, 
doing direct patient care. You can be a nurse out in the community. You can be a nurse that's in tech. You know, there's so many different things you can do and it's really easy to kind of move in between. And that's what's really attracted me to um, just kind of the variety and the mission. And that's what attracted me to nursing. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I love this because, I mean, you have such a unique point of view as, as a provider and as a now a survivor um, so, and, and an advocate. So tell us about you're in nursing school, you get diagnosed, take us back to before that diagnosis, were you in pain? Just mm-hmm. tell us how it happened. Right. So this is kind of a story that I always tell people about why it's so important to advocate for yourself. And if something doesn't feel good in your gut, you got to like push and push. So I was um, in nursing school and, you know, in nursing school, you take class called, a class called pathophysiology, which is a, uh, um, a class all about diseases and how things go wrong in the body. And it's kind of like a known danger when you take this class that you kind of self-diagnose yourself with everything. So, right. <laughs> so I um, started having some breast pain and I was still uh, nursing my daughter at the time, you know, I kept thinking to myself, you know, there's something's going on. It was in my right breast. It would come and go. I talked to my doctor about it. She ordered an ultrasound, nothing, found nothing. And then it really just became, I just started thinking about it more and the pain was just there. And it wasn't a like knock you over on the floor kind of pain, but it's something you could feel and it did, wasn't normal. I kind of started to get a little bit, and maybe this was the pathophys effect on me, I started to get a little bit like obsessed about this. And, you know, I went to the nurse in my nursing program, uh, the nurse at the the university, um, talked to her about it. I went back to my doctor and I think she was just, they were, you know, just kind of like, you know, Laura, it's fine. You know, someone even asked me at one point, you know, are you depressed? Do you think you maybe need to talk to someone? Um, And I was like, no, I think there's something wrong. And finally, I remember it was like, March, so this had been going on starting in January, like in March or April, all of a sudden I started, I was just really fatigued for about a week and I started to notice a lymph node in my, my axilla, my underarm that okay. I could feel that I never felt before. And I, I also could feel some lymph nodes in my neck. So I was like, oh, you know, okay, now this is something like that's concrete and that's wrong. And so I went to my doctor and she sent me to, um, she wanted me to see a breast surgeon. So I actually, she recommended two different surgeons. I went to see both of them because I got in to see them both with like in a day of each other. I'm just like, I'm just gonna see both, you know, why not? They both kind of said the same thing. Like there's really nothing wrong, you know? And one of them was like, you know, you're still nursing. We can't do a mammogram uh, because the tissue is just too glandular. It's not going to show anything. Mm -hmm. So quit nursing. Whenever you quit nursing, wait two months and then go get yourself a mammogram. Here's an order. I did that. I quit nursing immediately and waited those two months, like almost to the day and went and got a mammogram. And I remember my mammogram was on my brother's birthday and my husband was out of town. He went to the Marshall Islands, which is a little island chain in the South Pacific in Micronesia. It's really hard to get, his sister was living there at the time. And so he was like, totally like, I could not get in touch with him. Um, Mm -hmm. And I had my two little kids at home with me and I have a twin sister and she was staying with me. But I remember just thinking to myself, like, I'm not going to commit to going to my brother's birthday party because I know I'm going to go for that mammogram and they're going to tell me they want a biopsy which they did. So I had a biopsy two days later on June 20th. The nurse who was helping me 
made some comment. She's like the BIRADS, which is a radiology kind of rating on mammograms, you know, is a four or three. And, and usually this doctor is spot on. He's never wrong. You'll be fine. And I remember it was Saturday. This is back in the day when they actually would call with results on Saturday. I remember I was just waiting with my phone and he called and he was, he told me I had breast cancer. And he's like, you know, we're going to get something set up. We're going to need an MRI set up with you, you know, plan. There's an opening I can see, you know, we'll call you Monday morning. We'll get all the details finalized. And I remember my, I was getting my son ready to go to his t-ball game. My sister was in the basement on the treadmill. I don't even know where my daughter was, but I think they were, my kids were probably doing something. But I remember calling my brother because our, my, his son was on the same t-ball game as my, um, our t-ball team as my son. And I just said, he'll, I have breast cancer. Can you come pick up Ned and take him to his game? And it was just surreal. Part of what I felt was like relief, like thinking to myself, I knew it. I knew it. I was right. Like that was like one of my major first emotions. My second major emotion was holy shit. Like I'm 35. I have a, a kid who is one is two, one's five. Like I need to be alive for them because my husband is 19 years older than me like I'm the one that's supposed to like kind of last for them right I got out a binder and I started like making dividers in my binder for like pathology you know imaging and I was like okay I'm gonna get it we're gonna get it started and so that following week I went in I had some more imaging I had another biopsy and kind of the wheels started going so this was in 2008 when the care was um, there was a navigator there who was fabulous but the care was not as integrated as it is now. Um, so still kind of like separate appointments and seeing doctors here and there and systems that may not be quite connected to one another. Many, many, many still are not at all. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, yeah, and I remember my primary care doctor on that Monday morning, she got the results over the weekend. She called me and she was like, shit, Laura. Mm. And I was like, yeah, no kidding. I wanted to be like, yeah, no kidding. But I was like, yeah, I know. And so, you know, she was, she was fabulous um, throughout the whole thing. And, and another doctor in that practice called because, you know, we know him really well too. And, um, you know, everyone just started railing around. And that, you know, if there was one thing through this journey that I always like will just kind of keep in my heart and I always think about is that, how kind of people came out of the woodwork, right? So you expect like your friends and family to step up and like, you know, send you good thoughts or, you know, send you a text or a card or offer to help out. But just the, the people that were strangers, the people that like I kind of knew very, very acquaintance status, they, you know, people just stepped up and it was like the most amazing feeling. Like it would, like you could feel it was palpable that it was like, it was like a buoy, like buoying me up. Like I felt like I was like kind of floating in the water. That's what I found too, yeah. that I was surprised by the people who were there for us and disheartened by the people who were not. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. But, but yeah, yeah. The people that stepped up really, really stepped up. Um, and I want to make a note of, of, of some things that you said I think are so important. I want to make sure they make it in the show notes. But um, um, you said right at the beginning to keep advocating for yourself because you knew something was wrong. Mm -hmm. You yeah. knew something was wrong. So just, you know, really keep being persistent about your pain. You know, your, it's your body. No one else can feel it but you. Yeah. So, and then number two, what I love, and we talk about this from the very beginning with Cancer U, you got out 
uh, was it a binder you said? Yep, I got a three ring binder. <laughs> and tabs. <laughs> yep. Yes. Yes, you have to stay organized and on top of it. And having those paper copies is really critical of yep. everything. I just, yep. I love, love, love it. Number three, <laughs> um, you got two opinions yes. right, right off the top, yeah. and, yeah. which was amazing. So you get the news. What were the next steps for you? What was that treatment plan? So the next steps were seeing a surgeon and um, figuring out what surgery was going to so back in that, at that time, surgery was really the, always the primary, the first treatment for breast cancer. So nowadays we kind of see that um, a lot of times chemotherapy, if it's indicated, will be done first. Mm. But back then it was almost always surgery. And the type of breast cancer I had, it, it was caught very, very small. It was very early, but it had some uh, biological features that made it more aggressive. So I had what's, what we call the triple positive. It was fueled by hormones and also had, it was, it was HER2 new positive or amplified. So that's kind of like a internal fueling mechanism uh, that it's kind of like a that that mechanism on steroids so surgery was the next uh step and they had as part of my subsequent workup after that initial biopsy they did an mri which um found another spot that looked suspicious and they biopsied that and that was cancer too and so there was really no other option for me as far as surgery was a mastectomy was recommended and something that's called a sentinel node biopsy that node they actually biopsied the one that had been enlarged turned out to be negative i actually came down with mono and that's what kind of did these enlarged lymph nodes which is kind of interesting because that was really what spurred someone taking me seriously that there was that this symptom that the, the doctor could actually feel. I remember when I was talking with the doctor that I really, I had my sister. So my husband was still gone. I had my sister with me. Did he know uh, at this point? Had you yeah, gotten in touch? Yeah. Okay. All right. So he, he was like on his way home, I think at okay. that point. Um, my, I had my sister with me so she could take notes, which I think is another really important uh, Very aspect important. of all of this. And I remember in that First, you know, when I heard I needed to have a mastectomy, I was like, okay, let's, I want to do both. Like, um, you know, I know that the, doing a prophylactic mastectomy doesn't affect my risk of like the cancer coming back distantly. It doesn't help survival, but let's just do it. So I'll kind of be even, I won't have to worry about imaging moving forward. Like, I just want to do it. And at that time, things were much more paternalistic. It was like, no, honey, you really don't know that if you, you're very emotional right now, you're not sure if you want that. So you can always do it at a later time. So I was oh, like, okay. that has definitely changed now. <laughs> uh, I mean, absolutely. That's definitely changed. And I did end up getting, going back a couple, like two and a half years later and getting um, my other breasts done really just to kind of keep it nice and even. And now I don't have to wear a bra, which is. So, so what you didn't get the double mastectomy then? I didn't. Not at that time. No. Wow. Yeah. Because again, really kind of paternalistic and that's just how kind of, that, like I said, that's just kind of how things were done. At the beginning, you, you said some doctors asked if you were depressed. Do you think they would have asked a man if he was depressed? No. I mean, knowing what I know now in healthcare, women's, uh, women have a really hard time getting taken seriously. There's that thought that of being hysterical. I mean, look, look at the word hysterical and the root is, you know, hist. Right. Uterus. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, 
so no, I don't really, it's really very, you know, kind of interesting thing to think about. But then I had surgery. And so my surgery, they, they were able to get everything. I had clean margins, negative lymph nodes, reconstruction went well. I mean, it's it smooth and everything was happening at a time when like, it was the best possible time. So I didn't have to drop out of school or take a semester off. It was like wow. perfect timing. So then I started on, so chemotherapy, I didn't get a second opinion right away for medical oncology. And I started on um, tamoxifen, which is an anti-estrogen um, therapy. And I didn't not, did not need radiation therapy. And then a few months later, some research came out um, that was, was practice changing that even women with smaller stage one cancers that are HER2 positive should get anti-HER2 therapy, which is an infused therapy that's given alongside chemotherapy. So the anti-HER2 medication isn't technically like a, a medicine that kills cells. So it's not a cytotoxic medicine, but it's something that will block that HER2 receptor. It's only given along with chemotherapy. I was in my nursing clinicals and I kind of was following around a surgical oncologist for the day that was outside of the health system where I got my care at. And her nurse was like, you got to talk to someone about this because I, you, you need this medicine now. And so I went and I, um, my, first, my first oncologist was like, no, I really don't think you need it. And I got a second opinion. And this second opinion, I like, my, I loved him. He was skeptical about everything. Like, you know, like he's like, those guidelines, they're written by people that have a you know, financial conflict of interest. And like, he kind of had everything with open eyes. He knew I was in nursing school. So he was like, let's talk to you about like learning. You go look at the, some stuff up and you tell me what you think. That's unusual. It was like really kind of like, you got to read this for yourself. I know you can read it for yourself. Then this is what I think. Here are your options. And then let's talk about it together. So it was really, really a collaborative relationship. Um, and so we did some additional testing and it turns out I needed some chemotherapy. So I, I started chemotherapy. That you know was tough, but I got through it. I didn't have any major complications. I'm very, very fortunate and blessed that I was able to kind of, um, I started chemotherapy right as, as I was finishing school. So I didn't have to worry about a job. I was working for my husband at the time, so he kind of knew the deal. But I, you know, there was a lot of stress that I didn't have to deal with that a lot of other people deal with when they're dealing with something like cancer. So I feel very, very blessed in that. After surgery is when I kind of thought I was finished with treatment. I just remember my doctor prescribing the medication and saying, okay, we'll see you in three months. And I remember walking out of the appointment like, wow. like I heard it as, okay, see you in three months, don't get cancer in the meantime. And it was like, that was, that was like the second kind of worst moment um, was just that transition, which no, which I, I wasn't prepared for, um, at all that like, you know, you're kind of like thrown into the water and you don't know how to swim and you're trying to figure out like, how, how am I going to like manage? I remember dropping my son off at school and someone like who I barely knew was like, Oh, how are you? And I like started crying. Like Aww. it was like this PTSD kind of thing. It like just brought everything back when people would say th certain things to me. That's when I went to go see, that's when I reached out to the doctor. I'm like, I need some support. And we luckily my center had a clinical health psychologist on staff 
who works specifically within the cancer center. And I saw him probably like four or five times just to kind of help my, my, me process everything that was happening and kind of figure out some strategies on how to deal with some of my emotions. And so I could kind of move forward. And that was so essential. And just as a clinician now, mental health care is so lacking in practitioners. Um, we've been at my center without a psychologist for a few years now, and it's been really, really hard. But that transition is what really can, like I said, it was a very, very challenging time. And I see this over and over again with people. You, you think when things are done, yay, I'm not, I don't have to come back all the time. But then you realize life is not the same. You're not looking at life like through the same lens. And this happens to you. And then the people around you think, oh, you're done with cancer treatment. Yay. You're alive. Yay. Yeah. Yeah, Yes. You're you're alive. alive. And let's go back to normal how it was before. And, And it's hard for them to understand that like, that's not possible. So that whole, you know, this phrase has been like overused. Um, but that new normal is such an important concept, I think, to help people understand that there is a new normal and it takes time and it takes energy and it can be a struggle at times and you might need additional support. Um, maybe it's just crying and talking to a friend or someone who's been through it, but maybe you need to see a, a therapist. Maybe you need to you know, go on some antidepressants for a while to kind of help you through it, but it's definitely a transition and something to kind of be aware of. On that note, you queued up this question beautifully. Um, how do you look at your life differently now that, that you are no longer a patient, you are a cancer survivor? I was really aware when I was going through treatment that I was a young woman going through a disease that typically affects older people. Definitely. And it's like you kind of look at the resources always had older women on the pictures. I, you know, I, you realize very quickly that like a lot of this stuff, like you don't quite fit in to that world. After I finished treatment very quickly after I went to like a, um, this look good, feel better program where they kind of like help, they have like a uh, volunteer makeup artists and hairstylists, like teach a class on like how to paint in your, like not paint in, but like <laughs> fill in your eyebrows or like tie a scarf and like, you know, do your makeup. I mean, it's like it's specifically for cancer survivors. And I met another woman there who a few years younger than me, and she was the kind of person that's like, okay, you're going to be my friend now. And I know someone <laughs> else, someone else I went to high school with who lives in the um, area is just going through cancer too. So we're going to be friends with her and we're going to like form our little club. And so we did, we started our, our little, our little Aww. club and we decided to start a, like a local support group. And so we kind of, there was probably like five or six core um, people. There's a organization for women, young women affected by breast cancer called the Young Survival Coalition. And so they had a conference and we all went to it and we met a ton of great people there and we decided we're going to form a young survival our, our little support group was going to turn into a, a chapter. YSC chapter. Yeah. Um, and also when we were there, we met someone, um, his first name is Johnny now, his last name totally is, it, is the stuff. I'm Ehrman? Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm Ehrman Angels. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I'm Ehrman Angels. Yeah, they're great. And so he is fabulous and he is a firm believer in making sure that 
there's an obligation that that survivors have in leaving it a little bit better, doing something to help it improve it for the next person yep. coming down the line. And so that's kind of really what we were thinking, like, how can we make this a little bit better? Um, so we started our, our YSC group and we tried, we wanted to do it that like we'd have speakers and, you know, it wouldn't just be like people sitting around talking because we had no, none of us had experience kind of in that facilitation um, arena. But so like, you know, let's try to get some, uh, so we did, we were able to get some speakers and I, we always kind of talked about how it's, it seems to be a natural progression for many people. Like you go through treatment, you figure out how to kind of live and move forward after that. And then kind of advocacy is like a natural ne next step. Um, I think for a lot of people. And we also got involved with our local, um, the Wisconsin Breast Cancer Coalition, which is a very policy oriented um, organization that's kind of a, um, under the umbrella of the National Breast Cancer Coalition. So we went to conferences for that. I started volunteering on their edu education committee and working some, on some of their initiatives. And it was just kind of important to do that, to kind of give back in that way. What was your best moment in that cancer journey? I remember the night I had surgery. I stayed overnight for one night and my, my older sister stayed with me in my room. So my husband could like be with my kids and, and make sure they were feeling okay. And in the middle of the night, like I got my period. I was, and Nancy didn't have any tampons and I didn't, it was like unexpected. And I was like, God damn it. So I, <laughs> I had a male nurse Oh and no! I asked him, like, do you have any tampons? And he was like, uh, or a pack. Oh no. Like, uh, no. Oh, no. And he like <laughs> ran out of that room and it was like 2 a.m. And my sister and I just were laughing our asses off. And it was so funny. I mean, it was like, I mean, I didn't even know what to think, but it was, I just thought that that was the funniest thing. And, and that, <laughs> like, I have mem remember that so clearly and vividly. And it always just like kind of makes me laugh. I have that, I have that event. Um, the other, <laughs> I love the, it. The other kind of like the, the best moment, um, it's really kind of more of a feeling. It's what we had talked about earlier that like, how people come out and support you and leaving like a random little potted flowers in on your doorstep or, you know, just sending you a card in the mail and like those little, like a text um, from someone who like didn't really expect a text back just saying, Hey, like, I'm just thinking of you. I hope you're doing well. Yeah. Um, those kinds of things were just amazing to kind of experience. Yeah, someone paid our rent for the month. Wow. And to this day, I never found out who it was. And, you know, and the community raised money. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, we don't know who paid our rent because I didn't go back to work. I had to take care of my sister. Yeah. Um, yeah so. And at uh, the time, that was probably like the biggest, like, oh my God. We, like, oh, it was like, huge. Answered our prayers. Yep. Yeah. It, it was, it was, yeah, it was huge. And it's funny you mentioned your period one of the very few symptoms that my sister had that was not indicative of liver cancer, but indicative of something was off with her body. And I made a note of it like, hmm, we need to, you know, find out what's going on here. You know, she was 15, just turned 15. Hadn't, I had not taken her for her first ever annual pelvic exam. And, um, but she had not gotten her period. Uh -huh. And after I grilled her, grilled her and ruled out pregnancy. <laughs> right. She had a very serious boyfriend. Um, I was concerned because all the women in my family, it's like, it was like clockwork to the day kind of thing. And mm. so I was a little worried about that. And then, you know, she goes in, she starts getting her cancer treatment, chemotherapy. And I guess at least then standard of care 
for teenage girls was to immediately put them on the pill so they could, you know, sort of control mother nature and try to determine when her period was going to be, you know, to have the best possible outcomes with, you know, the platelets going down, all that fun stuff. Okay. And all putting her on the pill did was give her periods, make her feel terrible and make her even more nauseous. It it just got to a point where I said, is this really necessary? Birth control twice a day. Really? Oh, one, another teenage girl, her age was diagnosed at the same time with a different cancer was on four birth control pills a day four and her mother kept wondering why she was nauseous and I kept kind of prodding our mother and this is while we were in the hospital together I said ask about the birth control she does not need to be on that ask wow Wow. I had never knew that was part of like standard of care for for teenage girls yeah 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 so just trying to make sure you don't bleed when your counts are down and but I'm sorry you can't you can't control mother nature to some extent I mean yeah um what was your worst moment and all that. My worst moment was in actually my MRI, my first MRI. So it was after I was diagnosed. Um, and I went, I'm not claustrophobic, but I went into this MRI and it's a long scan and you have to lay on your stomach and your head's like in this little hole and your breasts are through this hole and you have to put your arms out. Um, so if you have any kind of like upper body or back issues, it can be really, really a struggle. And I didn't, but it was like, you had to stay perfectly still. And I thought I was going to die in there for some reason. Like I couldn't handle it. Like I remember they pulled me out. I made it through the exam and I like was like hyperventilating when I came out just crying. And like, I felt like I just kind of like crumbled to the floor. It was just a really bad experience. And I think it's because everything, I think I was kind of like channeling everything. I like when I was first diagnosed, I mean, I think I cried a little bit, but not a lot. Cause I was always, I knew it was caught early. I also knew though, like it can, it can spread and they didn't know all the details yet. You know what I mean? So I feel like I had kind of like a really reasonable perspective of everything, but I think, you know, you can't have that all the time, of course. And I think like everything kind of came and flooded to um, me at that moment. It was like all like whoosh and there was a big release. And um, I also remember after you're done with treatment, you, well, this happens while you're going through treatment, but you become really hyper vigilant about everything. Like everything you feel like a headache, you know, your knee hurts, you know, you have a cough, you know, if if there's something wrong, you always feel like, oh my God, that's, there's a, there's metastatic disease growing in my body. And you become really hyper vigilant about what's going on and you pay very close attention to it. And you can, to this point where you can be kind of over, you know, totally preoccupied and it can be, can, it can become disruptive. Um, but I just remember, um, having like a, a few different panic episodes and I called my doctor's office cause they always tell you to call and a couple of times, and this is kind of a, one of those problems I think that's just inherent to the situation. And I've tried over the years to kind of figure out how to make it better and it's hard, but you call the doctor and you explain the symptoms and you leave a message with the nurse, when you leave a message, the nurse calls you back. You talk to the nurse about what's going on. The nurse has to go and talk to the doctor and then call you back and hopefully catch you. And you actually answer the phone when that happens. And, but it was like for one of, I can't even remember what it was for specifically, but it was like, you know, you should call your primary care doctor about that. I just like started this whole phone call process like 24 hours ago. And now you're telling me to like call a different doctor. And now that I have been in cancer care, I kind of know a little bit about why that might be. It's not the the greatest answer, but like I see it happening and then kind of see the reasoning why. But at that time it was like, oh, 
I just felt, you know, kind of dejected and just kind of like, what the hell? Like, why? You know, I was angry. You know, I remember that incident very specifically. And that's something I talked to my patients about too and warned them that that might happen. That's good. Yeah. I love that you do that. Um, What's the one thing that you wish you had known at the very, very beginning of your cancer journey that perhaps you tell your patients now? That there is this transition when you're done. And it can be, for some people, very seamless and easy. And it can be, for some people, really difficult. And for some people, it happens like right after that last appointment before you come, that you come back like in three or six months. But for some people, it takes a couple of months to kind of realize that transition. But that, that tr- there is a definite transition that can be challenging. And that if you need support, you, you have to ask for it. You have to reach out and ask for it. Absolutely. So I wish I would, I would, I was prepared for that because I think I would have handled it better. I think it helps to know for most people. I think it really helps to know. And I think what's interesting is, um, I can think of a patient right now. Now he was very young. He was in his teens, senior year of high school. And for him, it was a seamless transition. Once he was finally diagnosed correctly, it took a long time and he just couldn't wait to get back to school and Get, you know, get back to yeah. sports and have a regular life again. He really did not understand how difficult it was for his parents and even his uh-huh. best friend because they all had this mindset that he was just going to die. And, and he didn't realize till years later how difficult it was for them to kind of move forward. And to this day, and it's now been about nine years he cannot talk about it with his mother. Wow. They can't yeah. have a conversation without her just breaking down. Wow. That is really interesting. I've never kind of thought about that aspect of it, but yeah, absolutely. And I think as a mother, you can totally, I can totally see that. Loaded question. Mm-hmm. And I love asking you <laughs> since you're in it every day, if you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the U S only one, what would it be and why? Without a doubt, universal healthcare that is not tied to employment that everybody gets. Um, And why it's because it's people are dying every day. We see people coming into the emergency department with tumors that have breast tumors that have grown through their skin because they didn't want to take time off. They knew something was wrong, obviously, but they didn't want to take time off. They couldn't afford the co-pays or they had no insurance and they were just scared about what was going to happen. You know, I've seen that more than a couple of times and that's ridiculous. And the financial toxicity that cancer brings that any kind of major illness uh, or condition brings, it's just as harmful as the disease itself. And there's no good reason that why why our current healthcare system is the way it is. I'm going to push back because I want your opinion. Hmm. Unfortunately, I too have seen tumors growing through the breast. So my, um, aunt, maternal aunt, had breast cancer. I think it was in her early 60s, um, got treated, was okay. However, she was one of the least healthy people I knew. She was incredibly anorexic, ate Mm -hmm. about one biscuit a day, drank coffee all day, smoked all day, maybe 95 pounds dripping wet, and she was 5'6", 5'7". And and so just did not, you know, did did not take care of herself. Mm -hmm. And when the breast cancer came back and she was told she was dying, she didn't tell anyone. Mm-hmm. And then she ended up in the hospital. And it's a long story how I ended up kind of on a fluke seeing her. But when I went to visit her, now this was a small hospital, uh, the only hospital in the entire county, so very rural okay. you know, area. And it was devastating to me because she was hooked up to so many machines 
And at that point, the cancer had spread to her lungs, to her liver, and to her bones. Mm -hmm. And I was livid, absolutely livid at what was going on. I went and spoke um, to to the the charge nurse and said, you know, what what is going on here? What's the plan? Now, it was my aunt's responsibility to do a living will or an advanced directive, right? Mm -hmm. Same thing. And she didn't do that. And because she didn't do that, um, there was nobody there to speak on her behalf. And she actually did wake up and, and, you know, and would fall back asleep, but, you know, but still. And when I spoke to the charge nurse, I said, you know, what is the plan here? She said, oh, well, we're transferring her to nursing home. And I, I was stunned and I became so livid. And I was, and I said, she's dying. She's clearly dying. I've never seen anyone this close to death. She looked like something out of a horror film, and I actually Mm -hmm. don't really watch horror films anymore. And her exact words to me were, well, she's got Medicare. They're going to pay for it all. And they were fully taking advantage of the system, this this hospital. And that was their whole goal. The good news is, is that she woke up I got her to understand that she had to write down a power of attorney. We got it all worked out. You know, we yeah. got her in hospice and actually she died within 24 hours peacefully. Still in the hospital, but peacefully. It all worked out for my aunt. But what do you do with those systems who will gouge Medicare? There are so many problems with the, the healthcare system as it stands. And there's so many, there's so many interested parties who have a vest, vested interest in keeping things this, uh, with the status quo because they are making money. Oh, sure. You know, I, I was actually, we were, I was actually just having kind of an online discussion with someone we were talking about um, prior authorizations, right? So okay. prior authorizations can be a real pain in the ass for medical people. Um, and it, you know, we see it as a, like a waste of time and a real kind of disruptor of care and having an adverse effect on patient outcomes. Right. So, but, you know, but they started because there were physicians that were like ordering every expensive test willy nilly because they would get paid a little bit more. And so there were, were some instances where there's fraud happening, where, you know, doctors are choosing the more expensive option because they can, you know, because of a, like, uh, you know, and systems are doing, you know, ordering tests. So they're done outpatient versus inpatient, you know, so all these different things. And I said, well, maybe, you know, we should, it'd be interesting to hear kind of from the payer side, like what, how this all works and what are some of the details behind the, some of the problems that prior offs were supposed to cause. And he said, you know, he's like, it's probably more of a situation where there's do, does all of the the kind of money that gets spent and time that gets spent on doing prior authorizations really uh, save money in the long run from the few people that are trying to do some damage. I mean, so that's how I kind of see it. I mean, there's certainly some big ways to do fraud. And I was just reading an article on Medicare fraud and it's rampant and and ridiculous, but are we going to kind of punish people who actually really need care in order to kind of protect the system. I mean, there's got to be better checks and balances. Um, you know, there was a recent article a couple of years ago, United Healthcare, huge fraud by a private individual, and they were told about it and didn't do anything about it. They were told about it? Yeah. And they didn't do anything about it. So it was, it's not on their high list of high, you know, high on their list of priorities to kind of fight that. So how, what kind of systems do we need to change in order to make it more of a priority? So much work to do. So much work. So much work. Okay. All right. All right. Let's lighten things up a little bit. Um, 
Are you ready for the Thriver rapid fire questions? Yes. Okay, here we go. Let's have some fun. Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach, or the mountains if it's only summer. <laughs> no snow. Uh, and the only reason I like to go to the mountains is to ski, so that's okay. Funny. Um, Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Uh, Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? Well, I don't know. Uh, nice. <laughs> Oh, no. Well, how about this? What's one word that your husband would use to describe you? Um, this is a two word, a hard worker. Um, before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? Oh, I love this song by the Smiths called Sing Me to Sleep. Okay. And it's kind of a slow, like night bedtime lullaby song. So yeah, right. that song. What is the last meal you want to eat? French fries. <laughs> Just all French fries with a variety of sauces. Well, okay. Sauces. What kind of French fries? I mean... Like the bigger, thicker kinds and like um, a combination, the bigger kind of thicker ones, some sweet potato fries. And then, you know, sometimes you can go, they'll have like spices on it, like spiced fries. Yeah. I like the truffle fries with all that. Yes. yes. Those are good. Yes. Um, the last person you want to see. My kids. And the last words you will speak. I love you. And aside from Cancer U, what is the one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? Um... I just discovered actually a website yesterday okay. that I thought and think is fabulous. And um, you were on my list to email about this. It's called, <laughs> it's called mypathologyreport.ca. So it's, it's done by some Canadian physicians who created a website that explains pathology from, you know, not just cancer pathology, but pathology from every part of your body, from all, for all different disease sites in a really kind of easy to understand way. And they talk about when your pathology report says this, this is why it's important. This is why we test for it. Okay. And it's an amazing resource. And I really, really am so happy I discovered that. Um, literally, I just kind of like stumbled upon it on Twitter yesterday. Very so that cool. I think is so, it's just, it's really, really cool. Another, uh, another resource I really like is Living Beyond Breast Cancer. Um, they have some, uh, they focus a lot uh, um, on really kind of all aspects of breast cancer, but a lot of it is very um, kind of universal to cancer in general. They talk about body image, uh, which I think is such an important topic. They talk about um, sex and relationships. Um, and they have, you know, information specifically for medis women who have metastatic disease and men too. Um, and that's often a community that just doesn't get kind of the attention and resources that the early yeah. stage does. So Definitely. Um, I think they have done a fabulous job um, in the content they provide. Thank you for sharing Perfect. your story. Well, thank you. This was so fun. It's always fun to talk about yourself, right? <laughs> <laughs> Isn't she awesome? She's awesome. So, well, it was great talking to you. Um, and yeah, we'll be in touch. I know we will. So We will. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. 
You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers Podcast. Real people, true stories.